G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon, and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. My guest today grew up in a Detroit that was a true musical melting pot, fueled by the cultural diversity that came with the post-war influx of men and women in the factories that made it Motor City. It was a grounding that made him the grandmaster of American music, a producer, bassist, songwriter, documentarian and much more, whose chill confidence and sly grin is behind some of the most iconic records of the past 40 years. From his own band Was Not Was to producing Bonnie Raitt, John Mayer, Lucinda Williams, the B-52s, Old Crow Medicine Show, Bob Dylan, and a little band called the Rolling Stones. His signature isn't so much a sound, it's an emotional experience, a way of connecting artists to the core sincerity at the heart of what made them great and delivering it fresh to the world at large. Now he's in the third act of his career. A few years back, he fell almost by accident into his dream job as president of iconic New York jazz label Blue Note Records, where he's the shepherd of the past, present, and future of the genre. Only work with people whose vision you trust, he says. If you don't respect an artist enough to lose an argument to them, you shouldn't be producing them. Don Was, welcome to my favourite album. Yeah, thank you, man. It's really good to be here. And that, that's a really nice introduction, too. Oh, cheers. Thank you. So, Don, what is your favourite album? My favourite album is Speak No Evil by Wayne Shorter. So I feel like this is a great record to talk about with you. Obviously, it's a Blue Note record. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, it was a really formative album for you in your Mm mid-teens, you know, coming during that period where you first got turned on to jazz. So Mm -hmm. tell me your origin story with this record. It came out when I was 14, and that's about the time I got hip to Blue Note Records. So I didn't come upon this record till a couple years later, but it really... It really was an important album to me when I was 19. I was in my first year at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And I was in the music school. And music schools weren't like what they are now. (laughs) You didn't have like a recording program or a jazz program. You either played in the symphony orchestra or you weren't in the music school. So I didn't dig that. Nothing wrong with classical music, but it's just really not what I wanted to do. I was into jazz, and I was very into what was going on in Ann Arbor at the time, which was like the MC5 and the Stooges, and those were local bands, and it was, it was a rich culture, let's put it that way. So I wanted to be part of that, but the only gig I could get was uh, in a bowling alley in neighboring Ypsilanti, Michigan, a band that played covers of like Carpenter's songs, nothing against the Carpenters. The band was called Sunshine. That's probably all you got to need to know about it. <laughs> it, was, it was painful. And to top it off, I hooked up with this girl who we later discovered was addicted to a drug called Quaaludes. I don't know if you oh, ever wow. heard of Quaaludes. So she yeah. was she was a whole lot of fun for a couple hours. <laughs> and then I was 19, man, she was way more than I could handle. <laughs> uh, it was a challenging time. I dropped out of school. I really felt 
that I had lost my way. I felt like I moved to Ann Arbor with hopes and dreams and a plan, and nothing was working out right. And the way I would get centered was I'd go back to my apartment and I'd put on side two of this album, Speak No Evil, by Wayne Shorter. And I, I was immediately struck by the drumming of Elvin Jones on this. And Elvin was maybe just a little on the exuberant side, maybe more so than he needed to be, but it was great because I listened to it and I thought, all right, he's got this kind of wild energy, the same thing that appealed to me about Iggy or the MC5. And I thought, I'm 19, I got some wild energy too. I can relate to Elvin Jones. And then I'd hear Herbie Hancock and his, uh, his knowledge of harmony and his sophisticated musical voicings were... I think even at, when he was 26, we're way ahead of everybody else on the planet. But it was really Wayne that got to me because I heard conversation. And what I do, I used to close my eyes and picture that Wayne and I were walking down the street and all these obstacles were headed towards us. Weird people, whatever. It was almost like a video game, you know, like Super Mario Brothers, except they hadn't been invented in 1970. So it was... It was documentary real life stuff <laughs> and, and Wayne with his horn and if you listen to the to the solo on Speak No Evil it's it sounds like conversation it sounds like he's speaking a foreign language it's not about saxophones or reeds or technique or scales or anything like that and he was just kind of giving me advice and guiding me and the essence of the whole thing was Wayne kind of being like a big brother saying, Don, you got to groove in the face of adversity. And that's what was coming through to me on a lot of the Blue Note jazz at that time. And I, I was a big fan of the label. Anyway, by the time I get to the end of this side two, I was realigned again, man. Everything was right. It was, I guess people achieve that through meditation, you know, smoking a joint. I don't know, you know, whatever your particular way of getting back to a normal place is. But in this case... This album centered me. The beauty of it is that it still works today. You know, if I have a rough day, I'll flip that record on, play those last three songs, and, you know, by the time the sides ended 17 minutes later, I'm feeling really good. And I was always knocked out by the way music could do that for you. And I thought that was a, a noble pursuit in life, you know, to, to try to make some music that helped people make sense out of their lives, uh, make some music that just kind of help, helped you identify your inner emotional life, you know, where conversational language fails to convey the depth of some of our feelings. Great music can do that. It gave me a sense of purpose. I, I wanted to do that for other people with music, and that's really, I'm not saying I've always been successful at it, probably missed the mark, you know, way more than I hit it, but it's something to strive for make music that means something to people, that brings them some comfort, that helps them live in this existential wasteland <laughs> <laughs> and, and find a sense of purpose and well-being, which I, I think music can do. about, I mean, you were saying that some of those qualities you found in common with a lot of the Blue Note catalogue, and I'm assuming that most of the other stuff you were listening to at the time was probably music that had lyrics to it. Yeah, that's true. And I was super into Bob Dylan. Still am. I, I still think he's the greatest of them all. I can't believe that he wrote all of those songs that he's written, and that so many of them are so great. 
You know, there's a movie that, I don't know if it's out yet, but it's coming out, about a guy who's the only, it's called Yesterday, and he's the only one who's heard of the Beatles, yeah, and yeah. so he starts recording all the Beatles songs. Like, And I always thought that about Bob, you know, that he must have gone forward in time, taken the 600 greatest songs ever written, and come back and portrayed it as his own work, because I just don't understand it. I mean, I've asked him about it. I asked him once, I asked him, why is it that you can write Gates of Eden and I can't? And he, he was actually very sweet about that. He said, well, look, if it makes you feel any better, I, I didn't actually write it. I, I remember my hand moving the pencil over the page, but I don't know where it came from. It came from out there somewhere, which is really what most of the great artists will tell you. Great, I mean, I've been fortunate to work up close with some of the great songwriters of my time, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson. Mick and Keith, you know, and they'll all tell you the same thing. They don't know where the songs come from. I kind of imagine like there's a creative ether out there and all of us can reach up and grab something out of that. But the really good stuff is all the way at the top. <laughs> and it's, there's just a few of us with tentacles long enough to reach up there and, and get the great stuff. It's been interesting to watch these guys up close as they do that. Was there a period earlier on where you were figuring in the back of your head, like, there's a trick or there's a technique, and working with these guys, I'll discover that. It's just something they don't talk about because they don't want to give the secret away. But, you know, up close and personal, you'll see it. Yeah. And then you realize that's not true at all in most cases. Yeah. I mean, there is this idea that it comes from out there through you. But there's a gift of being able to tune into it and receive the frequencies and to receive it and, and then to fine-tune it. So I'm not discounting the genius of these guys. I don't mean to do that. And what I'm saying really is that they have a gift that puts them in touch with some other realm. I guess that's, this is a long bow to draw, but like there's a part of that that's similar to the literal sense of you as a 14-year-old tuning the dial in your mum's car and oh, coming you know across the, the jazz station. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, you did that by accident, but then it's like you know where to go. You know where the frequency is to tune in to find that to stuff. Go, yeah. That, well, recognizing something when it happens, yeah, that, that, can, that can be a big deal. That story was actually my first exposure to Blue Note Records. I was indeed 14 and being dragged around by my mom on a series of errands on a Saturday when I could have been meeting chicks at the mall, you see. <laughs> so I was not very happy about it. And I was just a drag, so my mom left me in the car with the keys and said, you know, you listen to the radio, I'm going into the library. And I, I just started playing with the dial, and I landed on the Detroit Jazz Station. And I landed on it just as a song called Mode for Joe was playing by a guy named Joe Henderson, who's actually a saxophonist from Detroit. And I came in right on the sax solo. You can listen to the solo. It's the first thing up. It's about a minute and a half into the song. The solo starts. And he's just like like what Wayne Shorter, what I was just describing. He, he was not playing the saxophone. He was talking to me. He was really making these anguished cries. And I thought, whoa, that's exactly how I feel, man. <laughs> I don't know what was bugging Joe, but he was speaking to me. And I could relate to his anguish. Then the drummer kicks in. And he calms down and he starts to groove. And it was that same kind of message, groove in the face of adversity. And whew, calmed me down. I, I couldn't believe it. There were no lyrics, but the guy was speaking to me. And he turned my mood around 180 degrees. And when my mom got back in the car, I was like a nice kid again. <laughs> but I knew that music, not only did it soothe me, but it, it had some other effect. It made me feel like I was a part of something cool, you know? Yeah. And I wanted to listen to more of this music. I went out and got a little portable FM radio so I could listen in the house. And after a while, I started to notice that all the records I was digging, not all of them, I was digging a lot of records, but an inordinate number of the records I was digging were coming from this little label called Blue Note Records out of New York. So I started checking out the albums, and they had these incredible covers. It's actually one graphic designer, a guy named Reed Miles, designed most of our great covers from late 50s through the 60s. And there were these great photos on the back taken by one of the founders of the company, Francis Wolf. And it's just, you see these guys sitting there in this room and the walls always looked like they were black. You couldn't see anything, just cigarette smoke and saxophones and cool clothes. And I just wanted to be a part of that, whatever that was, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be in that room. And I uh, started collecting the records. 
there was a point where we'd drive across town on a bus. I was still too young to drive. I remember once getting on a bus and riding for 45 minutes through some very rough neighborhoods, even in the 60s. <laughs> and there's just a whole, an album called Larry Young Unity. We found one store all the way on the east side of Detroit that had a copy. And we go in there, and I just want to touch it, read the liner notes, see who was playing on it. The real mission was to con the owner of the store into breaking the shrink wrap and putting the record on, letting you hear it. It's too expensive. It's five bucks. Stereo was five bucks. Mono was four bucks. <laughs> so we couldn't buy them, but we could dig them. So was there a period when you were doing that where you had to just, aside from the ones you could get the owner to put on in the store, where you were looking at the cover photo and trying to conjure up in your head, like imagining what the record was going to sound like one day when you got to hear it? Yeah. Yeah, there definitely was. You know, there were some I just went blindly. I went with the cover. Ornette Coleman, Live at the Golden Circle. That's one where he's standing in front of this club. He's like in the woods, sort of. I don't even know where it is. It's in front of the club, I know. But like just a snowy scene. And he's wearing a top hat and a trench coat. And he's just the baddest looking cat I'd ever seen. And I wanted to be Ornette Coleman. And I didn't know what Ornette Coleman sounded like. But there was a Downbeat magazine offered it. When you subscribe to the magazine, you got to pick from two five-star awarded albums. And I don't know, I can't remember what the other one was, but I went with the Ornette based on the cover. And I made the right choice, man. It's, it's such a cool record. Still a mind-blowing record when I listen to it. One thing I was thinking about when you were talking before is, like, the difference between, you know, songs and records that you're listening to around that period with, you know, bands, songs that had lyrics... And these Blue Note records and the Wayne Shorter record is, I wonder if there's a part of the lack of lyric which made it easier for you to make the experience of listening to it about what you were going through in your life and, you know, for you to hear through the music what you needed to hear then. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. That could very well be. I generally believe that the best lyrics are impressionistic anyway. You know, when someone literally tells you the situation that opens the door for you to be able to say, well, that's an interesting story, but it's got nothing to do with my life. But what's an example? A song like Gimme Shelter. I didn't really even know what it was about till I was able to ask them what it was about. <laughs> and I didn't even catch all the lyrics. I never heard rape, murder. It's just a shot away. I don't know what I thought it was, but it was not that. And I had no idea it was about, you know, some Vietnam stuff. You know, I, I just, give me shelter. Who can't find some relevance to their lives no matter how different your life is from mine we can both relate to some aspect of someone of saying give me shelter right the stones are masterful at that bob dylan's masterful at that they leave you enough room to inhabit the songs you become a co-writer in a way you hang your inner emotional life you drape it over those lyrics and, and you make it yours and those are the best songs so whether it's poetry with actual words or poetry with notes and sounds. It's all kind of the same thing, but I do favor impressionism. Makes it a little more universal. Tell me a bit about Rudy Van Gelder, yeah. how important he was to the Blue Note sound. Well, he created, he was the architect of the sound. And for people who don't know, Rudy Van Gelder ran a little studio in the 1950s. He ran it out of his parents' living room in Hackensack, New Jersey. And you can look at the pictures of Thelonious Monk sitting there by the Venetian blinds in the living room lamp. And I can't believe his parents let him do it in the living room, but then put, install a window between the, whatever it was, the kitchen and the... 
But some great records were made in there. Rudy, he was an optometrist by trade and was practicing, but then he became so popular as an engineer that he built a room in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, that's still standing. And he got some young architects. I don't know if they were actually official disciples of Frank Lloyd Wright or just fans of Frank Lloyd Wright, but it's a Frank Lloyd Wright looking room. And it's got some magical acoustical properties. And he just captured this cool, is overused, but it's, it's just a really cool sound. And you really feel like you're sitting there in the room with these guys and all these classic jazz records were recorded there. He had a sound for Blue Note, Alfred Lyon, who was you know, one of the founders of the company in 1939. He liked it to sound a certain way. So Alfred had a day every week, and also Bob Thiel, who started Impulse Records, had his own day. Love Supreme was recorded in the same room. And that had, and Impulse had a little different sound, just a little different EQ, different use of echo, and that kind of thing. He's just brilliant, man. And notorious for his secrecy, he would cover up the model number and the manufacturer of each microphone so you didn't know what mic he was using. The musicians were really not allowed in the control room, and if they came in, there was a white line on the floor and that they could <laughs> not cross. And he was wearing, you know, a lab coat and gloves at some point, you know, to touch the mics. He put on gloves. By the time I met him, which is, you know, I had the job at Bluno already, the crabbiness and the secrecy was kind of a, a caricature, and he was playing to the archetype but was actually very sweet and incredibly helpful. I went to see him because we were in the process of remastering some of the records. There were no multi-tracks. It was just he mixed direct to two-track. And when you put the tape up, you know, I put actually the first one I requisitioned was Mode for Joe because I knew it so well. It's the first one I bought. Of course. I put it up. It didn't feel the same way as I remember it feeling, and I know the record pretty well. So there was something he was doing. He mastered the records, too. You know, So there's something in the process that made it the music we remember. No one really listened to it off the master tape. So I went over there to ask him what the truth was. I said, what are we matching to? I don't want to editorialize. I don't want to improve on what you did, which you, know, you put quotation marks around yeah. that because... I never heard anyone improve on what he did and all the different versions of CDs that people put out. The first pressing was always great. And he told me that the lacquer that he cut on his lathe was actually the truth. That was after he did the stuff. And he was quite forthcoming about the EQ and the compression that he used. But he also had a special lathe. The Neumann lathes are popular, and their Scully lathes were also very popular. He had a Scully lathe, and he was buddies with Mr. Scully and they hot-rotted his lathe. I don't know what they did, but they messed with the electronics a little bit, so that, that became part of the Blue Note sound. But he was great. He told me what I needed to know. He, he said, I walked in, he said, what do you want to know? <laughs> I said, where did Coltrane stand when he cut Love Supreme? He said, right there, about two feet in front of you. That's where all the saxophone players stood. So he had a, a method, but there's just a texture to those records that's it's timeless, it's evocative, it's hypnotic. It's beautiful. He made beautiful records, and the sheer quantity of classic jazz that was recorded in this room is, is mind-blowing. I, I don't think that there's an equivalent studio or engineer who dominated a genre like that. Yeah, it's amazing how that much as all of those records are very unique, and you're never going to like hear a random track from one and think it could belong on another, but there's a unification to the sound the same way there is on like Stax records and Motown yes. records yeah. that kind of like pervades across a lot of those albums. There's a real vibe, you know, like I said, from having one graphic designer, one photographer, one engineer, and basically a repertory company of players. So Herbie Hancock was an artist, but he also played on a bunch of albums. Bobby Hutcherson was an artist, but he played on a bunch of other people's records, on and on. Hank Mobley was on a whole bunch of people's records. Lee Morgan was on a lot of records. It's hard to do today. When I got the job at Blue Note, I kind of wanted to do that, but you can't go back in time. You really can't tell an artist who their cover designer is going to be anymore. It's just... Yeah. It's just not a cool thing to do. You know, the focus has shifted now to pursuing an artist's vision. Those are the artists who have value. Those are the artists I want to sign, artists with a vision. How can I say, all right, but it ends at the record, you know. You can't even tell people what studio to work in. I don't think that's right. Or what engineer to use or who should mix it. So it's very tough to maintain that kind of thing. Motown had that. You know, Chess Records had that. The minute you put those records on, you can identify 
the label. You knew a Motown record, and you knew a Blue Note record, really, from the opening notes. You may not have known. You could tell it was Herbie Hancock playing, but you didn't know whose record it was or anything. And there were people like me who just bought any new Blue Note record because there was a certain level of quality that was always maintained. We do that still, but in a more vague way. that was written by the founders of the label in 1939. And they talked about the pursuit of authentic music and the granting of uncompromising artistic freedom to the artists. So you, you mentioned in the intro my feeling about not being afraid to lose an argument to an artist. So you sign people you trust who have a vision that you believe in and you help them realize that vision, but you don't dictate the vision. So I think that's still true of... Blue Note Records, another thing that I think was an important quality, maybe even more important than just having uniform graphics or a uniform sound design, is the fact that in every era, the artists that were signed to the label were pushing the boundaries of what current music was. So Thelonious Monk in 1948 was doing stuff that nobody else had ever done, but has had an impact on everybody who's subsequently walked in his footsteps. Same could be said in the 50s of Art Blakey and Lou Donaldson and Horace Silver forming the Jazz Messengers and creating Hard Bop, which no one had heard before. It's a, a funkier version of what was going on in the jazz clubs, the bebop clubs in the 40s jump to the 60s, Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter doing their modal experiments and Ornette and Don Cherry and Eric Dolphy and Cecil Taylor stretching the boundaries of music and go right up to Robert Glasper today who I think does the same thing. He is young enough to have absorbed hip-hop and listened to Jay Dilla and actually worked with Jay Dilla and he incorporates elements of hip-hop into jazz in a way that no one has before. He's not the first guy to do it. Roy Hargrove did it brilliantly like 20-some years ago, but Robert's got a way of doing it that's got a really unique voice that resonates with people. My very first day in the office, he came in with the very rough mixes of what was to become his album, Black Radio. And you could tell, just listening to the rough mixes, that he was on something, and that it was something new and exciting, and no one had put it together quite like that. That must be the most exciting thing in some ways, to be... You know, you're here at the moment celebrating 80 years of Blue Note mm -hmm. and to be that far into the history of a label and still be finding artists and working with artists who are doing something innovative and, and unique and it isn't just an attempt to recapture the classic records of the past. It's something new that still fits within the legacy of the label. Right. Yeah, no, it's the greatest thing. You know, years ago, there were a couple of really important things that impacted my vision about this Years ago, a buddy of mine named Joel Landy dropped out of high school and opened a print shop where they printed the underground lefty newspaper in, in Detroit. And one night I went down to his print shop about one in the morning and it was after a show at the Grandy Ballroom and guys from the MC5 were jamming with guys from Pharaoh Saunders' band. And I thought, holy cow, man, this is... 
Now, we were out of our skulls, but even so, <laughs> it was still music that you never heard before in your life and that I never heard again. You know, it was just something that happened because it was that particular group of musicians playing together, all of them with really strong musical personalities. I thought that's a cool thing to do, you know, as opposed to just rehashing what someone's already done and getting it wrong a little bit, mm -hmm. <laughs> undoubtedly. Years later, I was hanging out with Leon Russell, and I asked him what the difference was between making records in the 90s and making records in the 60s. And he said, in the 1960s, if you handed your record in and someone at the record company said, oh, that's really cool, it reminds me of the Righteous Brothers or something like that, that was licensed to punch a guy. Man, that was, <laughs> that was the, the worst insult you could hurl at someone to say that it was like something else. He said, by the 90s, if you couldn't go in with the marketing concept that was lay it out clearly for everyone to see. This is a cross between Mariah Carey and Bush or, you know, whatever it would have been. Then you didn't have a chance. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, that that's not a good thing. That's not a healthy thing. Even playing, you know. I've been playing a lot lately. Bob Weir called me up to put a trio together. Bob Weir from Grateful Dead. I don't, I don't know if people, everyone knows who he is. But so it's just Bobby playing guitar. I'm playing stand-up acoustic bass, and a drummer named Jay Lane, who's played with him a lot, was in Rat Dog and some of his other, he was in Primus too, Jay Lane. Great drummer, really great drummer. So we have this trio that goes on, and the only rule is whatever you did last night, you can't do it again. So you can never, in the Grateful Dead world, you can never repeat the same show. You have to change the set list, not just every four days, but always. You can't repeat a show unless it's a, a themed thing. We're going to play the same show we did at the Capitol Theater in March of <laughs> 1972 or something. Short of that, it's got to be something brand new. And Bobby plays them differently every night. So if you said, I, I know how this song goes, I, I'll just play it the way I, I know how it goes. That's the surefire way to be playing it wrong because he's definitely moved on to something else. So you just have to constantly be present and fearless and not too self-conscious. And I think playing in that band has actually helped in running the record company because we got to make records that do that too. And you got to be tuned into that to recognize when it happens and when it's not happening. I've often wondered how you balance your time, like how you work <laughs> out, how you're going to spend your time because like, I feel like I'm constantly looking around and like I'm listening to a new record that I really dig and I look at the back cover and it's produced by Don Woz or I go to the Americana Awards and there you are mm -hmm. playing bass, or I turn the TV on and then you're musical directing the house band at some like amazing tribute night or something, yeah. and yet you run a record label and somehow all of these pieces fit together in a way where you're not just like you know constantly out of breath from running from one thing to another. Yeah, well, all the things you're describing are like fun things to do, right? You know, so I, I'm just trying to... I'm 66, you know, so you sort of know that you got limited time left, even living another 20 years, that's limited time. And I'm trying to definitely maximize the ride now, but it's not hard. I remember reading an interview with Frank Sinatra once, and it was at a period of time where he was filming a movie during the day, then he'd go to Capitol Studios, record a song, then he'd get on a plane, go to Las Vegas and do a Rat Pack show at midnight and come back and repeat it. And he said, how did you do that? And he said, whatever you're doing, just be 100% present for that. And then it's just fun stuff. And people take you there and drop you off. And, <laughs> and you do it. But I do think they're all connected. I really think I do a better job at the record company when I'm out there playing gigs with Bob Weir. You get to the essence of the thing. The essence of it is that you don't hit it every song. You may go a whole night without hitting it. But when you do hit this thing where the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts and the song becomes a living organism that also encompasses the audience and you can feel everything being connected and being one thing and everything feeding everything, it's glorious. And that's the goal whether it's on a record or in a live show, is to connect with people on that level. And you have to recognize what that looks like. And you have to remember that that's the important thing. Negotiating the contract is actually not the most important <laughs> thing. All the peripheral stuff doesn't matter. It's about capturing that moment of connection. I think someone at the company better be out there doing that and keeping their senses finely tuned to that. Yeah. <laughs> it's all kind of related. They're all it's kind of one thing. 
place I go to draw my pay Closed the door on me today Told me just to stay away And don't come back again I, I told my mama, baby, don't you cry I'll get a job before the day go by I don't know where and that is why I'm a worried man Worried man, a worried man I'm a very worried man Hungry babies don't understand There's a couple of things I can't wrap this conversation up without asking you about. One of which is you mentioned Willie Nelson briefly earlier in this conversation. Mm. There's a record you did with him that I love and I feel like not enough people have heard it, which is called Countryman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I just like, I, you know, I had a conversation with Mickey Raphael once about that record. <laughs> and I just would love to hear if you've got any stories from that or just even how that record even came about. I went to see Willie someplace and... I didn't see the audience moving. They were digging it, but they weren't physically grooving. And I thought, all right, how do we put a little more groove under Willie and not mess with his phrasing? Because in the end, he's a crooner, like Frank Sinatra, and he sings over the bar line, which runs kind of contradictory to a more gridded rhythm. Rock and roll, you spit it out in the grid. You can lay back the phrasing a little bit, but not not the way Willie does, where the line goes back so far it runs into the next line. He's a genius phraser, and you don't want to narrow his options with backbeats and eighth notes and that kind of thing. But I was listening to Bob Marley, and I thought, well, shoot, man, you know, he's crooning. He's got plenty of room to stretch, and yet it's an irresistible bubbling groove underneath uh, but Willie could sing to a reggae beat and be able to phrase any way he wanted to so we set up a band and just did it and it was just like a couple of days the coolest thing was Willie thought all right I'm recording with rosters now I'm gonna get triple high <laughs> <laughs> and the rosters were, were like all right it's Willie Nelson coming in we, we gotta go easy on this <laughs> so there was a huge imbalance by the end of the day <laughs> wow I can imagine and I love the front cover of that record is just like this giant yeah. Pot leaf rendering. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it was fun, man. We had a good time. And then we finished it and we took it down to Chris Blackwell in Jamaica. It was still running Island Records at the time. And it was when we stayed at his place. He has a resort, Goldeneye, which was Ian Fleming's old place. And I went out jet skiing with Willie Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> There's an image. It was like riding horses. It just looked like he was riding a horse. I picture it was. Texas in the Caribbean. <laughs> we had a ball, man. And to go in a completely different direction, Chris Gaines, <laughs> which is for, might be some people who I need to explain that, and I feel this is something that was very ahead of its time, where if it came out today, it would just be the biggest thing on the internet. But Garth Brooks, pretty much at the peak of his like world-dominating mm -hmm. country superstardom, made this record in character as an Australian rock and roll singer named Chris Gaines. Mm -hmm. So what the hell was that process like? It was fun, man. I love Garth. He's a great guy, great artist, brilliant guy. Really, He's a genius, really super bright guy and lovely, generous guy. I'd worked with him on this movie, Hope Floats, Forrest Whitaker, and Garth had pledged to do a song for the soundtrack like a year before, and he got super busy, but Forrest said, we need you now. Got on his own plane and flew from Nashville to L.A., watched a screening of the movie, and we wanted him to sing the Bob Dylan song, To Make You Feel My Love. And he sat there, I just gave him a guitar. He'd never heard the song before, played it for him. And on a little VHS machine, he looked at the scene of Sandra Bullock and Harry Connick dancing, and he just sang it on an acoustic guitar. And I had a DAT machine running, and that was that was it. It was genius. He did a brilliant job. I played it for Bob. I sent it over to Bob Dylan. And he said, that may be the best cover of one of my songs that anyone's ever done. I said, because he truly understood. It's like the Charlie Chaplin song, Smile, a little bit. You don't know 
if he really believes he's going to get the girl back or yeah, if yeah. he's just putting on a brave face, but he knows he doesn't stand a chance. And it's about not committing to either thing. That That's what Bob said. And Garth maintained that question mark in there. Beautiful version of it. So we, we got on well, and it became, it was like a number one country record. So Garth liked me, and he had this idea. He was making a movie, and he was going to star in it, but he was going to get killed off in the beginning. It was a murder mystery about someone murdering a big rock and roll star. But he had to play this rock and roll star, and he didn't think that the audience was going to be able to accept him as anything but old Garth in the cowboy hat. So what he wanted to do was release this fictitious artist's greatest hits, like a fictitious greatest hits, right? Yeah. <laughs> a year before the movie came out, so they'd be more accepting of him in the role when they saw the movie. And I just thought it was one of the coolest ideas anyone had ever had. But it sounded nothing like old Garth, who was not only the biggest country artist in the world, but the biggest artist in the world, selling 10 million records. I was impressed with his versatility. There's one song where you'd think he was Babyface. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a couple songs. Yeah. And Babyface was involved, too. He was the co-producer of the movie. It was something that they were going to do together. Well, anyway, Garth loved making the record, loved the record, and the movie was stalled on a script. And it was going to be years before it came out, before it even got made, I think. And he wanted to put the record out. So without the movie given it context, it was one of the strangest moves <laughs> in popular music. A bold move, but for a guy at that level to do something in character all the way through and have the character be so different from the guy that his audiences loved and identified with, I was pushing it. And the response was quizzical. <laughs> no one really knew what to make of it. You couldn't argue with his singing. He's awesome on it, you know, and, you know, it'd be like if George Jones made a record singing like Al Green or something. <laughs> hey, that sounds, that sounds cool to me. I once did a record called Rhythm, Country, and Blues, and it was a series of duets with R&B artists and country artists. And as George Jones and B.B. King did a song together, they did Patches, the Clarence Patches, I'm dependent on your son. Actually, General Johnson and Lyle Lovett and Al Green sing a duet, Vince yep. Gill and Gladys Knight. And the, the idea was to show that there was no real difference at the core between country songs and R&B songs, that Memphis and Nashville were just a couple hundred miles apart. And it, it worked really well. I mean, we sold a lot of records. It was just the greatest opportunity to be in the studio. Conway Twitty and Sam Moore did a duet. It was the last thing Conway recorded. He died like two weeks after the session. Alan Toussaint and Chet Atkins did Southern Nights. Can you imagine? Like, I walk in as the producer of two of the greatest producers of all time. <laughs> Travis Tritt and Patti LaBelle did When Something Is Wrong With My Baby. Aaron Neville and Tricia Yearwood did I Fall To Pieces. And we went to New Orleans and cut that. Wow. My papa was a great old man. I can see him with a shovel in his hand. Education that he never had. But he did once when the times got bad. The little money from the crops we raised. Barely paid the bills we made. Oh, life whipped him down to the ground. When he tried to get out, life would kick him back down. This is a more self-indulgent question just because we've got a mutual friend and I love talking about him and he's been on the show a bunch of times, but just tell me about what it's like playing with Ben Montench. Oh man, Ben. Ben's a genius. I don't know if people realize it. I mean, you you know he's great if you listen to Tom Petty records, but I've used him on a bunch of sessions. We've had bands together. We had a band one time called the New Maroons. It was Ben Mont, myself, Merle Haggard, Ringo Starr, a guitar player named Mark Goldenberg and Janelle Mosser. I don't know if you know Janelle from Nashville. I think Ben Mont told me about this once. We wanted to start this band with, we'd all, you know, everyone played on Ringo's record. So I was like, what's something we can do? Well, who's going to sing? So we called Levon, 
and sent him a first-class ticket, and it was at a time that you really shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so he cashed in the ticket, and oh, I'm sorry, Donnie. <laughs> so then Delbert McClinton came to sing, and he was just busy. Then Lyle Lovett we had come in and sing, and Lyle was going to be touring for a while, but he sang on a couple of songs. And then I had a dream about Merle Haggard doing it. So I called up Mark Rothbaum, who was Willie Nelson's manager. I said, you know, Merle, can you set this up? So we got in a plane and flew up to Redding, California, to Merle's house, me, Ringo, Benmont. I think Mark went. And we got to his place and sat around talking to him. And it had a lot of resonance for him because I don't think Merle thought of himself as a country artist necessarily. He was a rock and roll artist. He's like Elvis, you know. And he was making these records. He was on Capitol Records and the Beatles came along and they stopped making everybody else's records and the plants were just 24 hours cranking out Beatle albums. And it put a stall on his career. And he viewed Ringo coming up to his place as like a sign of respect and it meant a whole lot to him. And he had the studio. We brought some tapes up for him to overdub vocals on. You know, we just figured, you know, it's Merle's ranch in the middle of nowhere. It's actually not in the middle of nowhere. It's 500 acres in Humboldt County. So I think you know what he was doing with the land. <laughs> <laughs> so we went up there. We just figured it was going to be like a chicken shack recording studio or something. Like that. We walked in. He couldn't play our analog things back because he had this state-of-the-art digital studio. <laughs> and he had the guy, and I feel bad, I can't remember his name, but he was Billy Sherrill's engineer in the 70s. He cut behind closed doors. He cut all, you know, in all of Merle's records, and Merle just brought him up there. And so because we couldn't play anything back, we just cut some other songs. And he did a version of Born to Lose that I think is one of Merle's best vocals ever. And Ben and I, I'll never forget just looking at him. We're in a room with Ringo Starr and Merle Haggard. Everyone's like two feet apart. And I just kept exchanging glances with him. It was such a trip. The thing that makes Benmont so great is that he has a fundamental and internal knowledge of how to wrap the organ around the singer's voice without stepping on the singer. And he's just like a brilliant arranger in that way but he does it you know he knows how to work the draw bars which is a dying art you know so it's texturally it complements the singer and the notes complement but he doesn't play the melody it's above the melody below the melody and so he comes up with these beautiful supportive parts that add so much to records that he's it's just magical what he does ben's a genius well i can't think of a better way to end this although i could just pump you for stories for another four hours but i should let you go don thanks so much for talking to me today yeah it's a real pleasure it's good to see you and i like the questions thank you man. it was a good fun thank you That's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Thank you.